Oh yeah, it is Wednesday. It's more Good News Wednesday, and I'm here with one of my best friends in the world, Mikey Diamond, a dose of Diamond, Diamond Life Fuel. How you doing, Mikey? I'm good, mate. How is New York? New York, Chicago was incredible. I got to meet legends like Mike Tyson, Chris Gardner from Pursuit of Happiness, Lou Weisbach of Halo, uh, Teddy Greenstein from The Tribune, just to name a few. It was the the Legends Day. Badu was there. Uh, just uh, I can't. You know what? Sometimes I pinch myself. That's all I got to say. What a great trip! And I got to move my daughter into New York. She's living in the East Village. So shout out to Marissa. But enough about me. Let's talk about our guest, Luke Pardue. He is the economist at Gusto and or Gusto, either way. You say Gusto, I say Gusto. Which way do you say it? What do you say, Luke? Which way do you say it? I say Gusto. Thanks for having me. A lot me. of Gusto. <laughs> yeah, we do work with uh, Gusto. Well, Gusto, and, and you guys just came out with a new uh, report, which I'm super interested in, obviously, in my place, uh, as we have gusto pandemic entrepreneurs data report and i'd love to you know you guys have surveyed so many different small and medium-sized businesses uh what are some of the things that the report uh gave us that you were surprised about and why is it so valuable to small and medium-sized businesses sure so uh again thank you for having me uh i'm luke pardue an economist at, at gusto i think it's probably a little helpful just for me to outline what gusto is what we yeah, do please. first of all um, decide so decide are, how to uh, pronounce it correctly. Unlike yeah, me. yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's step one. <laughs> I'm so ready for Portugal. I'm like gusto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Gusto is a small business payroll and benefits platform for um, for small business owners. So we help owners onboard, pay, insure, and provide benefits for their team, sort of every step of the way. When we say small businesses, we really mean the smallest of the small, ten to twenty employees. Um, or even smaller, who don't have an HR department to handle all of these needs. And so, you know, beyond just running payroll, the day-to-day, making sure taxes are being withheld, we also help them provide health insurance and financial benefits that are really crucial to attracting and retaining good talent. And so, um, you know, that that's what happens on a kind of day-to-day basis. But even beyond that, during the pandemic, we've stepped up as a partner and helped facilitate almost four and a half billion dollars in PPP loans. And we're sort of knee deep in forgiveness. Um, and, you know, this past year has been particularly painful for small businesses, but one bright spot has been a record year of entrepreneurship. Uh, 4.3 million new businesses have been created in 2020, which was the highest year on record. Um, and so, you know, we have these top line numbers from the census and from some other data sources, but at Gusto, we really wanted to dig in and to see, you know, who are these entrepreneurs? Why did they start a business? What kind of businesses are they starting? So we decided to survey new business owners on Gusto's platform um, to kind of get a sense of that, to get a picture beyond these top line numbers. And, you know, there are some really surprising findings in this survey. First of all, this new entrepreneurship, this boom in new business creation is being driven by uh, entrepreneurs of color. We've seen huge increases in the percentage of new business creators who are black and Hispanic and uh, uh, Asian American. You know, all of these people who have been hit hardest by the pandemic turned obstacles into opportunities. But we've also seen that they're struggling. And just like 2020 was a record year for business creation, 2021 or 2022 could be record years for business closure uh, without some of the support that we've been advocating for. So when you talk support, um, can you go into like detail of that? Because, you know, when, when people, like you said, small businesses really are struggling and then like some people can turn the obstacle into opportunity. So how do you guys help those small businesses specifically when you say support? Sure. So, um, you know, first of all, what we do a lot and what I do as an economist at Gusto is use our data to highlight these pain points and to advocate for policies that help these small business owners. Um, You know, first of all, 
anybody who started a business after February of 2020 is not eligible for paycheck protection program loans. And there are tons of stories of small business owners who in January 2020, you know, signed a lease and opened their doors and started adding people to payroll in February, just as a pandemic hit, which is terrible timing. And it shouldn't be held against them that, you know, just at this time, February 15, 2020, is the the threshold for having payroll to be eligible for PPP. So anybody just around that time isn't eligible. So we've been advocating a lot to get support for these businesses that just had bad luck and bad timing. Um, but also, you know, state and local policies have a lot of a role to play. We've talked to a business owner whose story I think is particularly powerful. Her name's Ashley Walker. She started a smoothie place. It's called Smoothie Me Please in Riviera Beach, Florida, which is a food desert. Less than 30% of people have access to affordable, healthy food. So like so many small business owners, she's stepping in to fill a community need. But she started in January of 2020. And so many things were delayed and um, put off because of the pandemic that she received a, um, or she was able to receive a community development loan from the city of Riviera Beach to both redevelop an empty building and to subsidize rent for her lease for three years, which really provides this foundation. And that's what I mean by support, that starting a business, filling this community need is so risky that when governments from the federal level on down can provide certainty to these entrepreneurs, it can allow them the confidence to grow and expand and you know provide for their communities. And Luke, you, and Luke, you know, as an economist that, uh, you know, a high percentage of uh, new businesses fail in the first year without the pandemic, <laughs> without yes. the nuances, right? And so whenever we have the most new businesses uh, that open, I would assume in the next year, we would have the most new businesses closing just from historical statistics. But one thing that Gusto does uh, beyond the payroll and the benefit side is they really help scale a business. And I think one of the reasons that so many new businesses close is they actually can't handle their success. Mm. Uh, and and uh, you know, I work with so many different entrepreneurs, small, medium-sized business, of course, funded by the, the biggest entrepreneurs in the world, the gracious billionaires that have allowed me to do this either for free or for a little bit. But I really have you know, you know, created a niche to understand the growth and the needs of, of a business when it grows. And a lot of times, I think a lot of people think of business as a failure because it doesn't have business, especially mm-hmm. with the world scope and scale and size of distribution that we have in e-commerce, that people aren't prepared uh, to handle the business that they have. I know Gusto helps on both uh, ends when there needs to be supplemental support, but also to help give them the situation of knowledge to go from a small to a medium and a medium to a large business. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. You know, what we say is we help people grow with Gusto, that you can start as a small business and scale up. Or, or you grow with Gusto. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Depending on where you're from. <laughs> you can grow with I know Diamond likes that. Mucho <laughs> Gusto, Diamond. Mucho Gusto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gusto. I'm going to say Gusto. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but back to your one point about this uh, new business creation and the failure rates, we asked these entrepreneurs about their uh, optimism, how likely they would be to survive six months or to survive 12 months without additional support. And uh, we found, you know, in in a normal year, like you were saying, about one in five small businesses fail. But according to our survey, we could see almost one in two new businesses fail 50%. And that rate would be higher for um, Black entrepreneurs who, who are around 63% so they couldn't last a year. And one really important aspect is um, the fact that these business failures are particularly costly, that bankruptcies and closing a business is costly. And, you know, we think of new businesses being formed by uh, entrepreneurs of color as being really important 
an inspiring trend, but if they don't survive and grow, then uh, we could see the racial wealth gap and the racial income gaps exacerbated by this apparently inspiring trend. Um, but like you were saying, at, you know, at Gusto, we help businesses grow and survive. You know, even the day-to-day things like when you hire employees across state lines, managing multiple payroll taxes, or just growing and managing benefits is stuff that we, uh, you know, is sort of our bread and butter, and we help entrepreneurs um, grow with Gusto. I really love how you educate people. And I think it's very important because a lot of people, like Dave says, they, even their success, they fail because they, they're not educated in how to keep growing. When, when you're faith, you know, there was a lot of people that didn't get these loans and didn't know how to apply for these loans. You know, yeah. they were just in the dark and then you saw all these big chains get the loans and the small businesses got crushed. Mm-hmm. What, what strategies do you use? Cause I know it's very hard when people, uh, are just stuck and they won't listen. And you know, as an economist and a smart guy, like, look, you need to to pivot. So what kind of techniques do you use with people to teach them to pivot and step back and not take things personal when they're not working and come up with new strategies? Sure. You know, I think one thing that uh, we've been looking at Gusto or doing at Gusto is just making sure that the information is out there, what an economist would call a kind of nudge that, you know, a lot of people were left out of PPP because they didn't know about it or they didn't know how to access it. But at Gusto, we have great access to payroll data. So we provided their application data to create a loan. And we let that we partnered with um, many fintech banks to facilitate these loans. And um, so, you know, just where, when that information isn't there, stepping in and providing it in a way that isn't, um, you know, forceful or judgmental, they're not feeling pressured, but just knowing that if it's because of certain informational constraints, well, we're here, we've created this forgiveness report, we're going to make the process as easy as possible for you to take advantage of. Brilliant. And, you know, your education was in and you had studied the effects of our governmental programs and policies on disadvantaged populations, housing, labor in in particular. Um, What have you carried over into Gusto uh, to help support what the government did well, but also mm-hmm. to improve upon some of the things that you learned while you were studying that. Yeah, you know, I think what's really important um, coming out of my education is understanding what we call in economics, I'm, I'll use a term here called general equilibrium effects, which is, you know, not only first order effects, but also second and third order that a policy meant to encourage a certain outcome can actually backfire uh, in the long term because of unforeseen circumstances. So, um, you know, for example, one thing that I've looked at a lot is some of the effects of housing vouchers, which are incredibly uh, powerful in in making rent affordable, but in some cities can actually make it a little more expensive. And so I've tried to carry that over to Gusto, where we think about new business creation and entrepreneurship and, you know, government policies that ostensibly try to encourage these outcomes. And we see these encouraging first trends might, in effect, uh, counteract themselves or backfire if, for instance, we don't provide long-term support or these businesses can't grow and survive, but instead are forced to close. Amazing. I think I just I love the service you're providing. It's so good and so many people need it. And you just, you know, you're helping so many people. It's just really fantastic. So it's just awesome. Luke. Yeah, I mean, I, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Luke, go ahead. I was going to say, well, you know, one thing on my end that I love is is talking to these new business owners or any any business owner on Gusto because, you know, I have a, or I'm uh, in the process of completing my PhD. I sort of spent my last five years, you know, in books in the library, but actually hearing the experiences of these small business owners, it adds to my value as an economist as well. And Luke, what have you seen as far as, you know, with the more disadvantaged entrepreneurs, the minority entrepreneurs uh, that we have to create, you know, inclusive uh, 
equal opportunity. And I think, you know, the democratization of commerce through e-commerce has really helped with drop shipping and, you know, the supply chain being so simple to enter and to manage. Um, where have you seen the transition from, you know, this more developmental, you know, smoothie restaurant that, you know, is needed comparatively to a lot of small businesses are strictly online. Uh, and there's some great ones that can reach the entire world, uh, which I believe will have a greater impact on uh, the disadvantaged communities because a lot of times you know, what happens when you have the brick and mortar stores and you start expanding, they expand outside of their own community. And they, when the e-commerce side, all they're doing is driving wealth to the community where they live and they're yeah. spending their money in their community. Mm -hmm. uh, so where have you seen that trend, the e-commerce trend uh, take hold and how will it benefit the disadvantaged? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a little tricky because a lot of these changes are taking place over the long term and there can be some frictions involved. Um, you know, so one thing we've been looking at at Gusto actually is the geography of this economic recovery where we've seen so much growth out in the suburbs and smaller cities and urban areas, you know, like the downtowns of big cities are still suffering from the pandemic and people sort of emptying out of these cities. And I so um, I have to interrupt here because if it makes anybody feel any better, I travel all over safely vaccinated with masks but i will tell you the most depressing street in the country that i've been on is fifth avenue in new york oh <laughs> That's really by far the most depressing <laughs> oh my god every there's so much vacant space uh, wow. so i you know all of those brands got killed because fifth avenue is desolate mm -hmm. it's awful from the big yeah. restaurants to the the high-end stuff is just they couldn't afford their leases. But go ahead. Let's talk about the disadvantage, <laughs> not about Gucci and, and Tiffany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, but, <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, yeah, I'm sure they'll be fine. But, you know, the small businesses in these areas might not be. But the shift to e-commerce has allowed them to level the playing field and to ship their business or their goods. You know, we've talked to this cake company in San Francisco that was uh, it's a bakery that was built in, uh, started in San Francisco, but has sort of shifted to e-commerce and is able to deliver their products out because of this growth in e-commerce and, and technology firms catering to them. Yeah, and Mike's business as well has really transitioned from when I met him with the Diamond Life Fuel and being able to use e-commerce and the stretch and the branding that's uh, capable. Um, mm -hmm. Any last piece of advice, uh, you know, who should be reaching out to Gusto? You know, any secrets that, you know, or, or things to be aware of right now as a smaller mid-sized business that people, some gems that we can pass on before I let you go? Well, first of all, all are welcome to join Gusto and all should join Gusto because we make it super easy to both run payroll and then take advantage of all of these services like benef healthcare benefits and financial benefits. Um, you know, one thing that I'll, I'll leave with is that we are always fighting and advocating for small businesses. There's this huge infrastructure bill and we made sure that there's some good stuff in there for small businesses. So um, I would just keep an eye out for all of these great things happening on the horizon. No doubt. And uh, we appreciate you coming on. I say Gusto, but it's Gusto, <laughs> Gusto.com, the great Luke Pardu. Thank you so much. Uh, everybody check it out. It's absolutely a must or a gust have. Thanks yeah. so much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Great to meet you, David. Mucho gusto. All right, take care. <laughs> That's awesome. I would have said gusto for sure. I, I like sure. it, man. I actually thought it was gusto. And I'm like, yeah, let's go with the gusto. Uh, mucho gusto. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's there's so many great resources sometimes, and you know, people before they 
uh, feel as if they're alone in a struggle a situation. You know, like I always say, the easiest way to get to where you want to be is find someone in the situation that you want to be in and ask them for directions. It is a GPS for small and, and mid-sized business to get you that direction on where to go. Um, all right, as we wait for our next guest, my friend, uh, you know, we got a, a tight time frame. Uh, would love to, you know, go through with you and, and your small business. What's been your greatest challenge, Mike, uh, with Light Fuel that you found during the pandemic? And what did you do to propel yourself to a better place, a better situation? Um, the hardest thing is because I do everything myself is making sure you get your product and I can keep up with what you need. So, you know, I think what people fall through the cracks is, and I learned this years ago before the internet is I need to contact you personally and make sure that you're happy. And I think people like Annie Friselli did it so well when he first started business and he talks about it and people don't get it. I have to be take full responsibility and accountability for my product and how you feel when you take it. So if I send out 100 samples, I physically write down the people I've sent the samples to and I check up with them and say, did you like it? What did you like about it? And make sure I own those first 1,000 customers. So it's the responsibility that people don't want to take. And I've really had to really, it's been hard, but it's worth it because then when someone texts me and says, man, I feel great every morning taking your stuff. I'm like, ah, that person's going to get me the next thousand people. So I think taking the responsibility to say, Hey, it's on me. If I'm going to make this, it's all on me. Yeah, I know. And you know, I'm uh, on it right now. So uh, Wednesday <laughs> is my diamond fuel day besides diamond life fuel itself i'm all mikey diamond the dose of diamond i call it dopamine oxytocin serotonin endorphins flowing through me with the great taste that you have um you know one of the things as you grow uh as i took the same approach of what i call managing and developing a vision creating a go no go plan so that i'm selling through people not to people and you're one of the better people that I know in the world that sell through people creating that relationship. And it's the least expensive way to scale a business is when you're getting free salespeople because they just love your product and you've sold through them and they just want to help people and tell them how great it is. Um, as I'm trying to do by even, you know, our first show and we're in hundreds of these things and now a TV show on Bloomberg and Amazon. And I think to myself, you know what? I was just trying to, I love uh, diamonds business. I, I loved his product and I just wanted to help him and, thought, yeah, it would be fun to hang out every Wednesday to help people during COVID. And, who, you know, you do the right thing and things evolve, uh, which is, is amazing, right? Oh, uh, and, it's, and your gratitude. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. It's ridiculousness. Um, all right. So I'm going to cheat the system a little bit uh, and we'll go with a, a takeaway for the week. It's more good news Wednesday. Uh, we haven't seen each other since last Wednesday. Since we've only had one guest, either give me your biggest takeaway from Luke at the Gusto or your biggest takeaway of the week. You know what I liked about Gusto is I really love how he, and I think it's the educate people. People need education and people need help. And I found it really amazing that he is willing to do that work of educating people, teaching them about loans. So I feel it's my job always if someone is stuck to take the time to educate them. 
Yeah, I haven't seen an example of being more interested than interesting in a long time. When you're talking about 4.3 million new businesses that were, you know, uh, built and you think about what it's like. And I can't tell you all the businesses that I've built that I'm involved with as an advisor, business board member, whatever it is. So many times I change the trajectory of an entire business, small, medium or large, simply because somebody asked me, hey, Dave, do you did you ever have this happen or do you know anyone that can help me? And people would say, oh my God, I didn't know I could get a PPP loan. Oh my gosh, I didn't know there was a development. I didn't know I could buy a property from the court steps. I didn't know how to do that. And I, I didn't know. I mean, even when PPP came out, I found a aggregator, a broker, right? Because yeah. what was happening was the banks that were approved, and this is for small businesses, they were only helping the big clients. Right, because because they were so far behind. Remember, uh, yep. you know, Professor Orange was extremely slow in getting the money out to people, and uh, and then I I found a broker that that would shop the deals to, and you know, PayPal ended up being a great source for small businesses where nobody had an in, where you know you go to Wells Fargo and they're dealing with their private lending group is making sure that all their people are taken care of, and meanwhile, you know, PayPal's out there just feeding people and did such an extraordinary job, by the way, of, of helping save so many businesses by giving this supplement on, you know, I will tell you that I know so many businesses here in America that America invested in by giving them supplemental support that have never done better. You know, they went from literally would have been bankrupt to 190 stores during the last eight. I mean, and, and these are, you know, clients of mine that I mentor that, you know, I'm just so proud to be an American and to see the success that all these people have had from that supplemental help. Um, so being more interested than interesting. All right, let's bring Steve on. He's joined us now. Hey, Steve, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Good. Hey. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I had to have Steve on because he, you know, for whatever reason, I've attracted all my favorite, you know, founders of LinkedIn, in other words, the first chief HR officer. Now he's the talent strategist for Cadigan Talent Ventures. But I mean, talk about a role, you know, Kwame's a good friend of mine. Eric Lee's a good friend of mine. Now I get Steve on here. I, I got the whole host of people who created, you know, something much bigger than I think they even imagined. Um, but obviously talent is probably one of the most crucial things, especially today. Uh, attracting the right talent, maintaining and keeping the right talent, uh, especially with the way that the work quake, as you stated, has kind of, uh, come out and you've just published your first book, Work uh, Quake. Uh, give me an idea of what caused the work. Well, first, define the work quake and then tell me what caused the work quake. Yeah, well, you know, um, I started writing this book a couple of years ago before the pandemic and I finished it. Pandemic hits. I'm like, holy crap, maybe everything about the future work that I've been writing has no relevance. And uh, fortunately, after a few sleepless nights, I woke up and said, you know what? I think it's all relevant. And it, the book was born out of my fatigue of hearing all the endless media gloom and doom stories, run for the hills. Your job is toast. The robots are coming. Artificial intelligence, AI, automation is going to take over. You have no hope. Every skill that you know, you're going to need to unlearn and then relearn new skills. And it seemed to be just this endless defeatist stream of hopelessness in the media. And uh, so I wanted to come up with a, a different, more optimistic, more satisfying model for the future work for both employers and employees. 
And so that's what I that's what I strove to do with this book. And I found many organizations and many people, and I pulled stories from my background to try to find something more inspirational and more honest around this future work rather than, well, let's say, for example, this whole notion you mentioned about retention, okay? Every company wants great people and they want to keep great people. But what they really want is to thrive. And I think what we're seeing in the world of work is more turnover, more people changing jobs faster than ever before. And nobody I speak to in any part of the world thinks that's going to change. Okay. So when I also look at the, at the foundation of work today, if particularly in technology companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Groupon, Snap, Airbnb, Oracle, Microsoft, their median tenure is two years. Wow. And when I was at LinkedIn, we grew from 400 to 4,000. The tenure was nine months every year. And we created $26 billion of value. So it made me think, you know, maybe we've overvalued tenure, long tenure, and maybe we've undervalued new people with new ideas and new energy. And maybe that's the future work we should think about. Wow. Drop Mike. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 Mike's not going to talk. I will. He's in, he's in shock there. But for, for me, you know, um, the biggest critical issue, and it wasn't AI, you know, I'm a technology person like you. We shared the Silicon Valley early on. Uh, I was in the middleware space and then CEO of Samsung's uh, phone division with the first smartphone. But it wasn't technology. It was engagement because of technology. When you brought up this point about faster turnover and the benefits of it is that, you know, because of the attention deficit and the stimuli that's necessary in order to keep people engaged, it makes sense that we're going to continue to have a high rate of turnover. And it is almost a refreshment of engagement where, as I see, it's very difficult historically, uh, whether you work for GM or GE or whoever in in our country, you know, to stay engaged for 40 years that, you know, there, there may be periods of time, but, you know, most people, the percentages are just ridiculous of how disengaged they are. And the longer they're there, the more disengaged they become. And this is true in small and medium sized businesses as well. So it's really interesting. What have you seen in the engagement side? Because regardless if someone has skills, knowledge, if they're engaged, so, you know, if the average employee is engaged, let's say 17% of the day, if you can get, you know, fresh, fresh talent in there engaged 50% of the day, they can be one third as talented and get the same productivity. Yeah. You know, one of the most fascinating studies I've seen during the pandemic is that people who are working from home are more engaged with their companies, but they're less in the company. They're not at the company, but they're more engaged. And to me, maybe that's worth more exploration. Like I'm not buying that data on face value. So what's going on? Well, maybe I have more freedom of my and control of my time. Maybe I have more comfort level without feeling the breath of my boss on the back of my neck. And I'm, I'm proving that I can deliver and be productive without having to you know, sit within the boundaries that we considered work. And so that one thing around relative to engagement is super interesting to me. But the other thing, David, I mean, I've been studying engagement for since Gallus published this in, in the year 2000, first year we've ever saw their data. And we have sort of peaked out in the United States at 30%. 
like on, on one level, it's like, that's a tragedy. Like our, our people should be running for the hill. Like, oh my gosh, house on fire. It's like, oh yeah, 30%, pretty good number. Like, what? <laughs> and so it's made me started to say, and I don't explicitly tackle this in work quick, but it makes me ask the question, is that really something that's worth measuring? If it's coming out of 30%, we're just kind of going about our, our daily routines the way we were before we had that data. Maybe we should be talking about trust. Maybe we should talk about the dimensions of engagement. Maybe it's something deeper because companies aren't promising long-term employment anymore. And they can't, they can't promise business won't get disrupted in the future. They can't promise, particularly in technology, can't promise that there isn't going to be a new player that's going to force us to have to do a staff adjustment. But what we can promise and what's more meaningful, I think, and this is why I say, you know, we got to stop thinking about employees in terms of only caring about them when they work for us. It's a big part of, of Workquake, which is, and I was on a panel today, this conference around the future of learning, because the future of work really is about the future of learning. If you want to be vital tomorrow, your company's got to be able to pivot and grow and learn new skills. And I'm like, why do we keep only thinking about developing our people when they work for us? Why don't we care about them for the entirety of their career? Why don't we say, you know, in a world where more and more people are leaving, we have more alumni, more people that used to work for us. Why don't we curate that and nurture it? And most of the listeners, I, I, I would bet, are, are you know, scarcely more than 10% are going to say, oh, yeah, my former employees are always checking in on me saying, hey, we got a new product. Can you give us some feedback? Do you know anyone that would be a good fit for this role? We know you've moved on to something different. It's more the Tony Soprano School of HR, which is what you quit, you're dead to me. You know, and, and we got to change that narrative. You know, we got to change the narrative. I love that. So, Steve, do you think then when you're talking about engagement, right? So people need to buy in, right? People need to believe that you're going to take care of them. And there's got to be some kind of emotional intelligence from the leader, right? That says, okay, mm -hmm. if you work for me and I'm a really good leader, like you said, you're going to get benefits way beyond after you know, you leave me. So it's building that network with people that like if, you know, I work for Dave Melzer and Dave Melzer's awesome. I know I can always call Dave Melzer and he's going to hook me up. And I think what you're talking about is those leaders need to take that thing and say, I'm a leader. And if you work with me, you could be done in a month. It doesn't matter if you bring me value and I think you're working on your skills and you've got a growth mindset, you can always call me and I'll place you in the right position. So do you think it falls back on the leaders, not being good leaders in that sense? Well, listen, I, I got to tell you, and, and I, I'm sort of drafting off of a woman who wrote a book about this years ago uh, named Judy Estrin. She was a CTO of Cisco when I was there. We acquired her company, just a brilliant mind. And when I was interviewing at, at LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman pulled her book off the shelf and says, have you read this book from Judy? I said, no, should I? I'm, you know, uh-oh. And her whole um, premise of her book, I forget the name of the, the book, but it was, it, was a, it was a quick read. She basically said, in technology, and I would say writ large, and I'll ask you a question in a second well, to prove my point, what companies are doing is they're building for a short-term exit. They're building for eight to, eight to 15 years, cash in, get acquired, have an exit. And it, with that kind of mentality, it doesn't breed investing in leadership because we're really investing in an outcome of an exit. And yeah. so I believe there's a huge leadership deficit. You know, I was coaching someone in a technology company recently and they said, well, my boss doesn't know anything. She's not having, and, and I said, why are you expecting that? <laughs> well, leaders are not getting invested in, you know, as much as they used to be. And so to sort of try to prove my point here, what company, when you think of the United States is producing the best lead business leaders today? 
crickets. Yeah, and and that's it. I, I can't. I couldn't answer that question. Hey, either. Enterprises. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other than Meltzer Enterprises, okay. I was gonna... but, but what company? And 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 the first thing that people say, oh well, Google. I said, well, get t- tell me some Google alumni who are crushing it right now. And you ask any venture firm who bought the Google Halo to invest in some ex Googlers and lost their shirt. No, it's not necessarily producing. They're producing really interesting, innovative ideas. But th- that gets to my bigger point, which is we're not investing in leadership. And I'm not throwing the blame on anyone. I'm saying. Companies are, especially in the pandemic, they're trying to survive right now. And that means jewelry gets thrown overboard. We got to navigate this uncertain, ridiculous, unexpected reality. There's no MBA and remote hybrid leadership out there. We're all trying to figure this out right now. And so, you know, what I'm trying to tell organizations, listen, don't focus on a false promise that, you know, stay here a long time and commit to me and I'll commit to keep your job a long time. Just say, while you're here, to, and Mike, you, you phrase this uh, along, along the lines of what I think is the right way to think about this is, listen, as long as you're here, I'm going to invest as much in you as I can. You invest as much as me as you can, and then we'll be connected for the rest of your career. And I'm, I've got your back, you yeah. know, and that's all, that's all we can probably, that's more realistic than this pretend, oh yeah, you need to stay here a long time and we're going to promise you. No one, neither party can make that promise. You know, Steve, uh, and I'm bummed we have to let you go because I want to have you back onto another show because it's just such great data in the conversation. But I think to sum up, you know, your next book should be a lesson that I learned from Lee Steinberg, who was a great mentor and a great leader to me, running Lee Steinberg Sports Entertainment, probably the most notable sports agency. He always said, Dave, you know, when you are dealing with employees, with our partners, associates, clients, just be kind to your future self. And I think, you know, as a golden rule, uh, you could really talk to that of how we are or are supposed to be kind to our future selves, how we can recruit like Duke, as you say, because, you know, I know Coach Krzyzewski well, he's kind to his future self all the way. And if you talk about building future leaders, go ahead and look at the graduates from Duke and Duke basketball. Uh, They're building great leaders by being kind to their future self, elevating others to elevate themselves. And most importantly, uh, great leaders are intelligent followers, and thank you for being such an intelligent follower and helping all of us. Steve, come back and visit us again, uh, stevecadigan.com. Check him out. He is the talent strategist now for Cadigan Talent Ventures. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Bye. All right, it's a work quake, and my man is the her, uh, volcano there. I'm stumping uh, Mike today. We're getting, we're getting stumped. I thought for sure you are going to say Dave Meltzer Enterprises. I thought he well, sent, I was, sent you that like, softball. You know, I kind of just, I kind, I gave you the saying, "Hey, such a great, you're such a great leader and boss." But if yeah, I just throw in, you got me that. We got, we got that much. I am it's the like, original all transparent, I do is like, transparent I'm, suck ass, Dave Meltzer. Yeah, then it's like living in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> living in your pocket, like Stuart Little. All right, perfect. <laughs> all right, let's have some fun. I'm just a couple minutes behind. Uh, but it was well worth it. We're going to unmute Jonathan there. Make sure you're unmuted. Uh, we have our friend Jonathan Grechen. He is the co-founder of the Founder Institute, pitchforprogress.com. Could there be anybody better to help us as well here? Uh, you're talking about progress in the global competition, Pitch for Progress. That's better than two-minute drill. Uh, hey, Jonathan, welcome to Office Hours. Are you unmuted? Yeah, I, I thought I... Sorry, Matt. I'm trying my best. I am unit. That, that was my bad. I just want to say <laughs> real quick. First time on Zoom? First time on Zoom? Yeah, 
first time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I also just want to say uh, a lot of this Duke talk. I'm a Villanova alum, so uh, yeah, Nova. So, so go, so go, Wildcats. Uh, yeah, th- thanks, uh, thanks for having me, David. Uh, I, I've been. It, it was a really interesting conversation you guys just had, and honestly, a lot of the stuff that we're doing is is kind of. Uh, in a, in a similar realm, I, I think what Steve was talking about was, you know, just having a, the, the mission is important, right? And having people on your team that care about what you're doing and building a great culture as a team and, and kind of what we're doing at Founder Institute is to help people that are building new businesses uh, kind of have that same attitude because uh, that mission matters, not only to people that you may recruit to your team, but also uh, potential customers, partners, investors, and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I mean, you've been there. You have over a billion uh, in venture funding. You know, I think the largest uh, Founder Institute is the world's largest pre-seed startup accelerator. You guys have been around for 12, 13 years, if I remember correctly. But what has been, you know, 4,000 companies later, uh, you know, the common denominator that you've seen through the accelerator by helping all these companies? What's that common denominator of success? So we we actually take a social science view of this, right? Um, where every single person that's coming into the Founders Institute program, they're usually just uh, they they may even be a full time employee at another company, right? They usually come to FI when they are starting their first business. Uh, so we test them, and we've been working with social scientists now for for the last twelve plus years. Uh, and we try to quantify and, and find the traits that make successful early stage entrepreneurs. Um, so as you probably could guess, you know, IQ, for example, doesn't really matter for entrepreneurship, right? You, you don't, I, IQ is like, that's raw computing power. Um, but one trait that we do look for that we see to correlate very, very strongly with being a good early stage entrepreneur is something known as, um, it's fluid intelligence. And that is essentially, you know, in layman's terms, it's your ability to learn super, super quickly. So the way that we test that, literally, you could take this test, it's we show you a series of puzzles, and we're like, okay, this is a pattern. And then we show you all these other problems after that, and we're like, okay, according to the rules from that pattern, like solve number one, number two, number three, number four, right? That level, that kind of intelligence, that fluid intelligence, the ability to learn, quickly to adjust to the, the, you know, uneven playing field, the entrepreneurship, all those kinds of things are super important. And the other trait that we look for as well is what's known as openness. And that kind of lends itself to creativity, um, risk taking and those kinds of things. So that, that's our admissions process that we use to get into the program. And then once you're in, once we kind of quantify those, those raw traits, those raw materials that we have found to correlate positively with entrepreneurship, then we put you through a structured process to actually get there and, and to build a business that, that matters. Sounds nice. like my sales qualification process. I do open mind, open heart and open hands. And, uh, but I love fluid intelligence. I invested in a company that has adaptable intelligence and I wonder if they're utilizing some sort of fluid intelligence test in order to effectuate whether you have an adaptable intelligence, which I think, you know, as EQ was really hot the last 20 years, I think your fluid intelligence and adaptable intelligence will be at the forefront of what we are looking for uh, when we're betting on the jockey uh, on these, you know, in the accelerator stage or pre-seed funding stage. Go ahead, Mikey. Sorry about that. No, no, silly. Do you think that people can be made entrepreneurs or there has to be an innate ability for someone to just, it's in their DNA? 
That uh, that's the golden question right there, Mike. Right. Um, so uh, the short answer is that I don't personally. I don't think entrepreneurship can be taught. Okay. Uh, my company is called Founder Institute, but we are not an educational institution. When you come into Founder Institute, we put you through a process because I think entrepreneurship is something that you can only learn. All right. And, and I apologize in advance if there are any PhDs in entrepreneurship that are watching this. I, I apologize, but I think that might have been a waste of your money and time. Um, yeah, you're better, you know, you're better I, off I, just getting your ass kicked for 10 years. And that's much better than getting a PhD. <laughs> Yeah, I so I, I think we're we're in in, in like minded here where there are raw materials that are important, but at the end of the day, you could do all the studying and read as many books as possible. Every single scenario is different, and if that wasn't the case, then the best VCs in the world wouldn't have a ninety percent failure rate. You know what I mean? Like we don't know. We really don't know. We have best practices to figure out. Um, you know, to, to kind of figure out those consumer trends, but it's a constantly moving playing field. And I think one of the best values for any entrepreneur is, is this, is it's a phrase we use a lot. It's like, you don't know what you don't know. Okay. Yeah. And you got to figure that out. So there's a process to figure that out. You can't learn it in a book because it's literally changing from yesterday to today. And it's literally different from whatever type of product you're building or customer or whatever. No, I like that because like, even you're saying you're setting a test up, a certain way to see if people can get in that intelligent flow. Do you know what I'm saying? And a lot of people now think, well, I'm going to go and study entrepreneurship, but they don't really have it. Like it's not in them to just have that thing of just sitting in it, face adversity, yeah. turn obstacles into opportunities and grit it out. They just think, oh, I'm, it's cool now. I'm going to be an entrepreneur like Dave Melser. If you, if you can't have somebody tell you to your face that your idea is the dumbest thing they've ever heard, um, and then keep plowing through that. It, it's literally, it, it's something that we do with a lot of our entrepreneurs, right? A lot of people try to raise funding and we have a test. We're like, okay, if you have to get, it's like a video game, right? It's like, get to a hundred no's. You have to pitch a hundred investors and get awesome. them to say no to you. Awesome. And you know what? If you, if you are any, if, if you are adaptable and you could figure out the learning, that is going to get you so much closer to being successful because number one, you're learning. And number two, you actually just have that raw skill of being, you know, resilient. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that... And Jonathan, that's what I want to ask, you know, as we finish up is that, you know, for me, I, I'm blessed to be around billionaires, millionaires, entrepreneurs, celebrities, athletes, entertainers at the highest level worldwide. And the common denominator is always a desire that they must be what they can be. And, and that encompasses consistent, persistent resilience, the ability to enjoy it. You know, someone and you've had these people in your accelerator when you tell them to go out and get 20 no's or 100 no's, whatever it may be, they enjoy it. And I'm a sicko that, you know, I I'll actually call it the 25 no rule, right? Like every time I get a no, I know I'm just that much closer to a yes. And yeah. I get more excited than thinking I'm farther away or someone's hurt my feelings. Have you learned at the Founders Institute? Because I think it's one of the most valuable things to be able to witness or be aware of the differentiator that that one it that you know you can see a sales guy you know charisma you can figure out this this fluent intelligence and adaptability and emotional intelligence you can figure all that out but there is no way that i have found that i can meet somebody even if they've told me stories that they've survived you know like a brian bogart of the world has been crushed between cars i'm not so sure 
that even that guy, I could tell whether they have this desire that they must be what they can be. What do you look for for that magic that makes a true success? So I'll I'll put it in the way of as I was describing before in the social sciences, right? So obviously, as you said, it's the the persistence, the ability to take those no's until you get to the yes, because that literally is just the ability to learn and not take it personally. So incredibly important. It's not even funny. Right, the ability to have an open mind—it's a—it's a, this goes to the social sciences. It's called the Big Five personality trait. It's called openness, and that is the ability to just be risk-taking and to be open to new ideas. Right, but I think once you kind of quantify those two things, like that's sort of the—I I, would—I uh, would call that kind of the entrance of uh, admission. Right, like that gets you in the door. After that, uh, what we look for is the perfect combination, and this, again, to the agreeableness, it's a, a trait called agreeableness. So if you looked at this personality trait, it, a zero, a person that has zero agreeableness is literally, can I curse on here? Yeah, or, yeah, go ahead. Okay, all right, good. Uh, <laughs> that is somebody that is- a Only complete, you and my wife, only you and my wife can Okay, complete unsufferable asshole, right? right. Zero, zero agreeableness. Like literally you couldn't even say, no, I like this, this soda better than this one. They're going to argue about that. A hundred on the other side of the scale is a 100% total pushover, right? Um, so what we look for, it's somewhere between, you look at that as the 35 to about uh, that 65 scale of the people right in the middle of that agreeableness. And the reason why I bring that up, and I know I'm getting a little bit kind of data-driven, but that's what we do as entrepreneurs, right? Um, it's if you have that ability to be really fast learning, right, which is fluid intelligence, if you have that ability to have an open mind and, and not like hold your your uh, your beliefs uh, so close to your heart and be so, uh, so, you know, emotional about it, which is openness. And if you combine those things with the ability uh, to have moderate agreeableness where you're not a complete asshole and you're not a complete pushover and you're able to push when you need to and, and have that flexibility, like that is the perfect uh, place. And, and and that's our admissions process at Founder Institute. And, and that's what we found to, to be uh, the best one. So I, I understand that's maybe not actionable advice, but, but that's, that's what we, what we look for. Don't be a dick. Basically, yeah, that's my next yeah. book. Don't do business with dicks. And I will tell you uh, something that I found actionable uh, that falls in the context of what you're describing. I call it the process of trusting and vetting those people that know how to trust and vet, uh, which yeah. is a great combination. Anyway, go. we got to jump. I'm on a tight time frame because I got a dentist appointment. As you know, I am real about it. That's right. I, not, not bad. Anyway, uh, Jonathan, thank you so much. Pitchforprogress.com. Everybody enter. What a great company. Founder Institute is, check out Jonathan Greechen. He is here to be of service and of value and empowering over 4,000 companies, funding over a billion dollars, uh, which is incredible in venture funding over the years. Thank you so much. We'll have you back on, my friend. Incredible conversation. Thank you. Go Nova. Go Nova. They've won a championship a lot sooner than Duke has. All right, perfect. Here we go. All right, Mikey, I got a baby tooth that fell out, so I got to figure that out. Uh, no pain, no gain. Mikey Diamond, Diamond Life Fuel. We'll see you later. Remember, Thank everyone, you. we did the takeaway of the day. Don't take for granted what other people are wishing for. Be kind to your future self is my takeaway and always my tagline. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you, team. Take care.